morning, Orchard. Take out your Bibles, if you would, this morning, or your mobile devices, whichever you choose to use. Turn to the book of Esther, chapter 2, verse 1. Esther, chapter 2, verse 1. I'll be using the New Living Translation if you kind of want to match up translations and, and follow along. We are in week two of a new series we kicked off last week called All In and the Book of Esther. As you're finding your way there, let me ask you this by a show of hands. How many of you have ever felt like the, de- the deck has been stacked against you in your life? You ever felt like the deck has been stacked against you? Some of you are like, you just described my life right now. Maybe you've gone through something in your marriage and you feel like the deck is stacked against you. Maybe your finances, your job, your health. Well, you're going to be encouraged today because as we jump back into Esther chapter 2, what we're going to see is Esther reminds us that sometimes in our life when it feels like the deck is stacked against us, God may actually be stacking the deck in our favor behind the scenes. I told you last week as we introduced this book of the Bible, the book of Esther, that the theme is the providence of God, that God is always at work behind the scenes in our lives. Even though this is a book where God's name, it's one of only two books in the Bible that God's name is never mentioned, you can clearly see God's fingerprints and his hand at work throughout this entire story, which is encouraging to us because sometimes we go through trials and tribulations and difficulties in lives in our lives and we feel like, God, where are you? God seems to be absent. God seems to be busy with somebody else. God seems to be missing. And this reminds us that God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And that even when we cannot trace him, we can trust God. Amen? And you have that in your notes this morning. You're taking some notes on the back of your newsletter. We can trust God even when we cannot trace God. Uh, this story is Romans 8.28 on display, that all things work together for good to those who love God, who they're called according to His purpose. And so this is going to encourage some of us today that God's always at work behind the scenes. Uh, let me kind of catch you up. If you weren't here last week, first of all, I'd encourage you to go to our website. Just put in orchard.church. It'll take you right there. Our message page and watch. We put all the messages on there. You can watch them. You can listen to them. You can podcast them. So you can follow the continuity of the story. But let me just bring us up to speed. Last week, we opened chapter one. We met a very evil, uh, self-indulgent, prideful, egotistical uh, king. And and this king uh, had one too many to drink during this six-month-long party, if you remember. And he made a really foolish decision. And he banished his wife, Vashti, his his wife, off the scene. He He got rid of her. Well, even though that was a bad, foolish decision because God is in control working behind the scenes, today we're going to watch as God uses that to stack the deck in a woman named Esther's favor. And so today, if you're taking notes, we're going to see God's hand in three ways as we jump into chapter 2, and I hope you'll you'll follow along with some notes. The first one, if you're taking notes, is this. We see God's hand hand in this story and His fingerprints, number one, through the contest of the king. There's going to be a contest to replace Queen Vashti that was banished. And so we see God working through this. We pick it up in Esther chapter 2 verse 1 and it says, But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. Now we we read from chapter 1 and jump to chapter 2 and it says, After Xerxes' anger had subsided. You know, was this like the next morning? Now he's sober. He comes to his senses with the next morning, next week, next month. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, history tells us four years goes by. So when when it says, but after Xerxes' anger subsided, four years later. And I can only imagine King Xerxes, four years later, he's kind of sitting around. He's listening to some sad country song. (laughs) He's got his three friends there, Jack Daniels, Jose Cuervo, and Jim Bean, because we know he likes to drink. And he's like, you know, I'm kind of sad. I'm kind of lonely. 
I really miss Vashti. Maybe that wasn't such a good decision. So some of his buddies come up with an idea to encourage and cheer up the king. Verse 2 says, so his personal attendants suggested. In the original Hebrew, this reads, his frat buddies. Okay? They said, let us search the empire, king, to find beautiful young virgins for the king. In the Hebrew, let us go to the sorority houses. Let's see if we can find the most beautiful young virgins to cheer up the king. I'm sure this got the king's attention. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. They're all going to get a spa day. After that, the young women who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice, watch this, was very appealing to the king. So he put the plan in effect. No, duh. Of course this was very appealing to the king. This is an egotistical, prideful, self-indulgent king. And they're like, we're going to gather all the most beautiful virgins in the Persian Empire, bring them to you, and the one you like the best, that's the one that's going to be your new queen. This is the first episode of The Bachelor of Persia. I'm convinced they got the idea for the TV show from the Bible. They're going to have this beauty contest. Now, so far it appears that the king is having the deck stacked in his favor. He's like, this is great. This is a wonderful idea. But Proverbs 21.1, we'll put it on the screen, says this. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by who, church? By the Lord. And he, the Lord, guides it wherever he pleases. And this reminds us of a, of a very important truth in, in our Christian life, that God is sovereignly in control of every situation. Amen? God is sovereignly in control. He's providentially in control. And even though King Xerxes is sitting on the throne and making these decrees, there's a greater king in heaven sitting on the throne, working all things together for good, stacking the deck in his favor and the favor of his people, as we'll see this story play out. I like what Charles Spurgeon once said about the sovereignty of God. He said, there's no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the teaching of divine sovereignty. And some of you need to hear that today because you're going through a situation, you're going through a trial, a tribulation, a challenge in your life, and you feel like maybe God is absent, and you need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God, that it's okay, God's got this, He's on the throne, He hasn't forgotten about any of us, amen? And so in the context of the king, we see the deck being stacked, the stage is being set for God's purposes and God's people. The second thing we see, the way that God is stacking the deck, is not only in the contest of the king, but in the crowning of a woman named Esther. The crowning of Esther, if you're taking notes. And we see God's fingerprints in several ways in the next several verses. First of all, we see God's fingerprints in the influence of a man named Mordecai. One of our key characters I introduced you to last week. This is where Mordecai shows up on the scene. Verse 5 says, at that time, there was what kind of man, church? There was a... Jewish man. That's very important and key to this drama in the story. There was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. And in Hebrew, Mordecai means little man. He is my favorite character in this story. This guy rocks. This guy is so cool. I like Mordecai. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. You know, sometimes I make jokes about my height. 
while I'm on the stage and new people to our church, they don't realize until they meet me afterward. And then they're always so encouraging. They come by and they go, wow, you are really short. You look a lot taller up there on that stage. The stage in our new building will be three times the height of this stage. <laughs> it says, Mordecai's family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. You may be wondering, how did Mordecai, these Jewish people, end up in the Persian Empire? And in 597 BC, we know that the nation of Israel went into Babylonian captivity. That's what brought them there. In 538 BC, another king named King Cyrus made a decree that they could all go home to Jerusalem. Some of them went home, some of them got comfortable in the empire. And stayed there. Mordecai was one of those people. That's why he's still here. Verse 7 says this, this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah. And you're all like, okay, who's Hadassah? We don't recognize that. Who was also called Esther. Hadassah was her Hebrew name. Esther was her Persian name, which is she's referred to in this story. Uh, Esther means star. And I like that because she truly is the star of this story. And when her father and mother died, Esther's father and mother, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. So Mordecai, the older cousin of Esther, became her adoptive father. I like that because those of you who don't know my story, um, I was adopted as a baby when I was two weeks old and I was raised by my parents, my mom and dad, their mom and dad to me. And I, I praise God and thank God for my adoption. I don't, I don't know where I'd be today or what would be going on you know, if God didn't work that in, in my life. And that's what's happening with, with Esther. But I want you to understand, this is very important that you note this as we follow this story. This is key to the drama that the people in Persia didn't know that Esther and Mordecai were Jews. We're going to see this. They keep it a secret. And that is important. Just follow that away. But God is going to use Mordecai in Esther's life in a special way to stack the deck in his favor. Many scholars and theologians have noted this, and I like this. It's one of the beautiful pictures of Esther. You know, when you approach studying the Bible, I say there's three ways you can approach studying the Bible. Historically, doctrinally, and practically. And this is one of the doctrinal truths, that Mordecai is a picture of the Holy Spirit throughout the story. As he is working behind the scenes, giving advice and counsel and directing and leading Esther. You'll see this throughout. Because Jesus told us this about uh, the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 16, 18. We'll put it on the screen. And, and says, uh, Jesus said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will, what? Never leave you. That's encouraging. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. No, I will not abandon you as orphans, I will come to you. And that's exactly what Mordecai is doing for Esther in this story. Uh, her parents have died and he's coming to her rescue. He's leading, he's directing and guiding her. And so we see God's fingerprints through the influence of her uncle Mordecai, which is going to be key through the rest of the story. Second thing is we see this, we see God's fingerprints in the encouragement of a man named Haggai, the encouragement of Haggai. Um, he doesn't last very long in our story, but he's in a, he has an important role. God's got the right people in the right places at the right time. Verse 8, it says, As a result of the king's decree to get all the young virgins, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He really liked her. He quickly ordered a special meal for her. You know, her favorite meal, cheeseburger, french fries, milkshakes, Chick-fil-A, I don't know. Special menu. He provided it for her with special beauty treatments. Gave her her own little special spa day. 
He also assigned her, I wonder if you ladies would like this or not. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Any ladies like to have seven extra maids around your house helping you out? I mean, he is hooking her up. He is setting her up. But what I want you to see, don't miss this. What's going on here is that God is so great and so sovereign, and so in control behind the scenes, even though his name is not mentioned one time in this book, he's so great and so controlled that he's working in the heart and mind of a eunuch who's keeper of a harem of women to get the right people in the right places. And that, help, that reminds us, and we can relate to that, that God can work in anyone in any situation. Some of you may be going through something, you can relate to this right now, and you're like, but Pastor Doug, you don't know my spouse. You don't know my boss. You don't know my neighbor. You don't know my situation. You're right. I don't, but God, who's the king on the throne, does. And he's in control. He's sovereignly in control. He's providentially in control. And when it may seem like he's absent, he's doing work behind the scenes, stacking the deck. And God, I believe, is working in places and through people that you and I may maybe think he's absent, but he's not. He's not. And Haggai here is giving special treatment to Esther, which is going to be key as we continue in this story. We also see God's fingerprints in the nationality of Esther. What is Esther? What's her nationality, church? You know what it is. She's a Jew, just like Mordecai's a Jew. Let's pick it up in verse 10. It says, Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so, like a type of Holy Spirit directing her. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her because he cared about her. He loved her. It was his adoptive daughter. And, and people speculate, why did Mordecai tell Esther not to tell anyone that she was Jewish? I think he was trying to protect her. He was trying to protect her safety. I mean, if there was any chance of her becoming queen, if they knew she was Jewish and not Persian, she would not have been chosen. But as you're going to see, God had a greater purpose in mind. Just remember that. We also see God's fingerprints in the approval of the king. I mean, the king has got to choose a queen, and there's hundreds and hundreds of these beautiful young virgins that are brought to him. Who's he going to crown as queen, and does God have anything to do with this? Well, watch verse 12. It says, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed. This is, some of you ladies are going to like this. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. One year, six months with oil of olay, I mean oil of myrrh, sorry, <laughs> followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. Let me ask you ladies, how long does it take you to get ready for a date? <laughs> Probably not a year. Maybe men, we need to cut some slack to our ladies. You know, I said that in the first service and several ladies were like, amen. <laughs> like, don't say anything. It took these girls 12 years to get ready to go on this date with, with, with the king. And that also begs the question, as I'm reading this, is how, you know, stinky were these ladies? I mean, what have they been doing that it takes 12 months to get them ready? I mean, this would have been bath and body works heaven. She, when Esther finally went to meet the king, she would have smelled poporific. It would have been incredible, okay? I don't know if you ladies like that or not, but anyway. Verse 13. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. I mean, there's a room that's like Nordstrom's, Macy's, Saks, and Victoria's Secret. It's like, choose whatever you would like to go meet the king. Verse 14. 
That evening, she was taking, she was taken to the king's private rooms. Okay, this was like the fantasy suite on The Bachelor, for those of you that watched the television show. And the next morning, she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. That's where they would stay forever sometimes, the rest of their life, unless the king would call for them again. There she would be under the care of the Persian rapper Shazgaz. Let's make sure you're awake. The king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the... Watch this. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Now, hi. <laughs> I don't know if any of you guys are picking up on this, this story and this drama and this scene, but this is getting a little sick, isn't it? I mean, this is getting a little gross. I mean, these women had no choice to, but to be there. They were gathered up in the empire. They were brought there. They had no choice of their own but to be there and obey the king or, or die. I mean, this is pretty disgusting. And he basically like, okay, he would bring one lady in, in the fantasy suite, spend the night with her, have sexual relationships with her, and then put her away unless he ever wanted to call for her again. You know what's sad? As I read this, there are men and even some women today that are just like this. I'll sleep with you first and then decide if I want to get to know you. This is not a good thing that's happening in the story. Can we agree? Amen? This is, this is kind of gross. This is kind of sick. But it also reminds us that even though this is sick and this is evil and sinful, God can use what others meant for evil for good, as we're going to see this story play out. I, as I think of King Xerxes at this point, I want to call him King Jerxes. Some of you ladies, can you agree to that? This is really King Jerxes, not King Xerxes. But God's still in control. God's still on the throne. And it says in verse 15, Esther was the daughter of Abihel, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin, Esther. We talked about this. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. And she asked for, help me church, she asked for nothing except what he suggested. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. She didn't need all the extras that all the other ladies needed to beautify herself. She was naturally beautiful. God-given beauty. Verse 16 says, Esther, but who, who's the king going to choose? What's he going to do? Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter on the seventh year of his reign, uh, probably around early December. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other younger women. And some of you are like, oh, there it is. This is a romance story. This is a love story. Well, I encourage you, go back and look up in the Hebrew that word love. It's used very loosely here, very flippantly, like a lot of people use love today. This word love means he had sexual attraction for her. That's all it was. This wasn't love. This was lust. And it, but what choice did she have? And so he, it says he loved her more than any other, other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. So she wins Bachelor of Persia. Instead of getting a red rose, she gets a crown. She is now the new queen of Persia. And to celebrate the occasion of her coronation being crowned king, queen, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials. This guy is always looking for a reason to party. We saw it last week. Declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. This is like early Christmas Everybody's off work, everybody's out of school, they're giving gifts to each other to celebrate the crowning of Queen Esther. 
And you know, it's hard not to root for Esther in the story. I mean, she is the underdog in the story. She is there probably against her own will, but God is using this providentially. And if you think about this, the deck is stacked against Esther in every way, humanly speaking. She was the most unlikely woman in the Persian Empire to be chosen as queen, which reminds us God's in control. She was Jewish. If they knew that, she wouldn't have been chosen. She was an orphan. She was an outcast. She wasn't from royal line. She was a commoner. I mean, this is really one of the true Cinderella stories, if you will, of the Bible. But it, lets us, it reminds us that God's in control of this situation. And it also reminds us of this. This encourages me. That God doesn't use and choose perfect people to do His will and to do His work. He uses broken, common, everyday people for His glory and our good. I'm thankful for that. Are you thankful for that, Orchard Church? That if, you're, if you say, man, I'm just a, a broken, common, everyday person, you're a perfect candidate for someone that God might use for his purposes. So he gets the honor and glory and the credit. But he also uses it for our good in our life. You have this in your notes. Let me say it this way. God uses common people to accomplish uncommon purposes. God uses common people to accomplish uncommon purposes. And I love that in this story. And again, God is working in the heart of a king to choose of all people Esther to be crowned as the new queen, fulfilling his purposes. At every turn, God is stacking the deck in his favor and the favor of his people. So we see God working sovereignly, providentially behind the scenes, stacking the deck through the contest of the king, through the crowning of Esther, and then number three, if you're taking notes, through the counsel of her adopted father and uncle, or cousin, excuse me, Mordecai. Mordecai, the counsel of, of Mordecai. Let's watch what happens in verse 19. Verse 19 says, even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official. So he's, he gets a promotion. God's getting the right people in the right places. Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality, a what church? A secret. She had not put it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. She's laying low with this. Why? She was still following Mordecai's directions just as she did when she lived in his home. She's listening to the Holy Spirit through Mordecai. Just as we should listen to the Holy Spirit of God when he tells us to stop or to go or to turn this way or that way. And then it says, verse 21, now watch this. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, this was kind of like city hall. This is where government would take place. Two of the king's what? Eunuchs. Some of y'all are afraid to say that in church. Okay, it's in the Bible. We're going to talk about this. Two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh. Now, I've got to stop right here for just a minute and address this. Have you noticed that eunuch keeps coming up in this story? It was in the story last week. There were seven eunuchs. We've had a couple of eunuchs this week. You know, we've got Haggai the eunuch. We've got Bigthana. We've got Teresh. And I made some jokes last week about eunuchs. Some of you laughed and some of you didn't. I don't know if some of you were like, is it okay to laugh about eunuch jokes in church? Or you didn't know what a eunuch was. From this moment on, you need to understand what a eunuch is in this story because it's key to what's a about to happen. So I want to just ask you, I want to take a poll, all right, don't be afraid. How many of you know exactly what a eunuch is in the Bible? Raise your hand, okay? It's probably about 70, 75%. For those of you who do not know what a eunuch is, you must know in order to understand what's about to happen in this story. And so I brought a visual today. Is anybody nervous? This is where you put your hands over your kids' eyes. It should be in kids' ministry. Okay, you ready? Eunuch. 
eunuch. Any questions? This is a eunuch. All right? Does that help everyone? Are we all on the same page now? Say yes. But let me, let, me, let me say it this way. How many of you have had your male pet neutered? You ever had done that? Okay. Poor pet. Eunuch. Okay. I like to define eunuch as a man that once was happy. Eunuch. What did you learn in Orchard Church today? I learned what a eunuch is. Now, why? You say, Pastor Doug, is that called for? Is that necessary? Why are you making such a big deal about that? Because now we have two eunuchs in this story, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, now watch this, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out why they're angry at the king and want to kill him. Eunuchs! If the king had made me a eunuch, I'd want to kill him too. Amen, men? This is not hard to understand. I just, my only question is, why did it take so long? History tells us that King Xerxes would gather 500 young men every year and make them eunuchs. Some of you are like, please quit picking up that doll. I mean, it's really bothering me. So they're mad. They're upset. And they want to assassinate the king. Of course they do. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to who? The new queen, which happens to be Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. So the king knows that Mordecai saved his life. So what does he do about it? When an investigation was made, they kind of have a congressional hearing. This would have been national news. Somebody's trying to assassinate the king. When the investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men, the two eunuchs, were impaled on a sharpened pole. We now have two eunuch kebabs. <laughs> this was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes, I mean Xerxes and his reign. Now listen, all of this is setting up the rest of this story. God is stacking the deck. But, but as we wrap up chapter 2, let, let me say a couple of things. Notice Mordecai saved the king's life from assassination of these two eunuchs. But there's nothing here. There's no award given to Mordecai. No you know, medal of honor, no gold star, no lifetime membership to Starbucks. Nothing. Yet. Yet, you know, one writer said it this way, our good works are like seeds that are planted in faith and the fruit doesn't always appear immediately. And even though he's not immediately rewarded, God saw and the reward is going to come. This act of Mordecai is going to become very, very important and key in this drama four years later. Now, the good news is you guys don't have to wait four years. You just have to wait a couple of weeks till we get to chapter six. And this story is going to come back around because what does it say? It was recorded. It was written down. But here's what you need to know. This is all setting the stage. I mean, this is like a cliffhanger every single week and every chapter of this story. That God has the right people in the right places. He's going to use Mordecai. He's going to use Esther. He's going to use the king. All of this. For his purposes and his people. The Jewish nation. And some of you are like, well, how is God going to help the Jewish nation through what's going on in this story. You have to wait. It's coming in the, in the next couple of weeks. You have to wait. But trust me, the deck 
has been stacked. And let me tell you this, you do not want to miss next week because this plot by the two eunuchs to assassinate the king is nothing. It's child's play in comparison to the plot of our villain that's going to show up next week, a man named Haman. And you don't want to miss that. As we wrap this up, though, today, it reminds us in the story, when you see the rest of the story play out, that God is sovereignly in control of all things, stacking the deck in our favor. One of my favorite verses, many of you up sure love this verse too, is Jeremiah 29, 11, and I think it's being played out in the story. God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for what, church? For good and not for disaster. This story is going to start to look disastrous in chapter 3 and 4. But God says, I have plans for good and not disaster to give you a future and a hope. We can trust God even when we cannot trace God. And when we face trials and tribulations and difficulties in our life and it feels like God is absent and God is missing and God has forgotten about us and God has forsaken us and God is busy with someone else, we can trust God even when we cannot trace God because we have a God who says, my plans for you are good and to give you a future and a hope. Can we praise God for that this morning, Orchard Church? That's what's going on in this story. And let me remind you that God knows the details of your life better than anybody. And he may be stacking the deck in your favor when you don't even realize it. Allow God to write the rest of your story as we're going to see the rest of the story. And as we wrap this up this morning, let me just share with you how God has providentially and sovereignly been stacking the deck in the favor of Orchard Church to help more people find and follow Jesus in this community in ways that some of you probably haven't even realized. And it's only coming to full fruition now that I'm beginning to realize it. About three years ago, I sat in a meeting with the school district, 27J, who obviously owns this school and this auditorium. And we've had the privilege to meet here for 10 and a half years and, you know, I remember we, we moved in here with about 90 people on the first Sunday in January of 2007. And we, we looked around. You know, when I say 90 people, it was like about 50, 60 adults and 30 kids. So, I mean, everybody was sitting like right here, and we roped off everything. And we said, man, how are we ever going to fill this place? And God said, you're not, but I am. I am. And so we just began to be faithful and preach and teach God's word and reach people for Christ and make disciples and baptize and I remember we, we finally outgrew one service and we had to add a second service in 2010. And we thought, oh, we'll never, we'll never get beyond two services at Prairie View High School. And then in 2013, we had to add a third service because we were packed out and there was no room. And then a couple years ago, we said, man, we're full in three services. We can't add any more services. We're out, we're out of room. What, what, what are we going to do? And I was in a meeting about three years ago with 27J and this was before they were trying to vote in the new mill levy and build the schools and the bond. Do you remember that? And it hadn't happened. And they didn't know if it was going to happen because it had been defeated a couple of times. And I sat at that table and they said, you know, if this bond doesn't pass this time, we may have to go to school Monday through Saturday. And the only day we'll be able to clean the school and get it ready for another week of school is on Sunday. And Orchard Church may not have a place to meet. And they told us that. I didn't want to tell you guys because I didn't want to scare anybody, but we started praying. We said, okay, God, you must have something else for us. And we've said over and over, we did not come to Denver to build a building. We came here to build God's church. 
And the only reason for a building and the only reason for a facility is to better facilitate ministry and our mission. And we said, if God wants us to have a building and a permanent facility, then God's going to have to work it out. And we left it in his hands. And after I walked out of that meeting, we said, well, man, we, maybe we got to start seeing, is there another place we can meet? We need a backup plan. And it's not like, you know, we can just slip in anywhere because of the size of our church and how many people have found Jesus. And so we found what we thought was going to be our answer. It was a building in Brighton, and it was a, a place that had moved out. It was an old grocery store. We started talking to the owner, and it looked like, man, we're going to be able to rent this and maybe buy that. And it looked like God was stacking the deck in our favor. And then all of a sudden, the owner said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to rent it to a church. I don't think the other you know, businesses around here would like that. There's something in the contract they signed, and, and God closed the door, and we felt like the deck, the deck was being stacked against us again. And so we were like, well, what are we going to do? And we had always noticed there's 38 acres just sitting right here next to Prairie View High School. We noticed it the first Sunday we moved in. We approached the owner of that land after a couple of years and said, you know, we'd be interested in maybe buying a portion of it. He said, it's all or nothing, 38 acres or nothing. We said, well, how much? He said, $4 million. We said, have a nice day. And we just continued on with ministry. Fast forward about seven years and after God closed the door and we felt like the deck was stacked against us, we didn't know where we were going to meet. The owner approached us and after several failed deals, he said, listen, I want to unload this land. I think Orchard Church needs to have it. It makes sense. And we said, how much? And he still wanted more than we were willing to pay. He wanted like $3.3 million to make a long story short after a lot of negotiation and a whole lot of prayer. We told him, we said, the only reason, or so the only way we'll buy your land is if we can pay cash for it because we are not going to go in debt for the land because we're not buying land to put a sign that says future home of. We're buying it to put a building on it. And we had saved up over 10 years, and we bought the whole entire 38 acres, paid cash in one transaction for $1.8 million. And, and I can just tell you, and then we started seeing that maybe God is stack, stacking the deck in our favor to, to advance his kingdom, this community. But what we found out is buying the land is the easy part. If you've ever worked with the city and tried to build from the ground up, buying the land is the easy part. And I remember sitting in a meeting with, with Brighton and, and, and saying, okay, we bought this land now and we want to build a building on it. And they were very nice and they were very encouraging and they were very supportive, but they kind of looked at me across the table and they said, oh, young man, little Pastor Doug Dameron, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into and the time that it's going to take and the amount of money. You're going to probably spend well over a million dollars just in developing the land before you even turn dirt and begin to build. And you don't have any idea how to build a building. And they said, you're going to have to go out and hire a company that knows how to do this. And so we went out and we talked to other companies that know how to do this. And they wanted like half a million dollars just to help us through the process. And we felt again, oh my goodness, God is, you know, what's going on, God? What, what, what are we going to do? Is the deck being stacked against us? And then I went to a second meeting with the city. And there's a man sitting across the table with the city named Jack Cooney, who is a faithful member of our church, Jack and Jeanette, had been for many years. Oh, you all see where this is going, don't you? And he's sitting across the, the desk. I said, what are you doing here? And he was like, well, he said, you didn't know it, but I have been working for the city for the last eight years full time here at Brighton, but now I'm retired. But I wanted to sit on this meeting because it's my church involved. I approached him after uh, Sunday service and I said, hey, maybe God's got you in the right place at the right time to help us. And he committed to that process. And Jack Cooney has walked with us every step of the way, working with the city to get us through everything. And we are now just a couple of months from moving in to our first permanent facility. Can we praise God for that? <laughs> and that is only because 
I'm not in control. We're not in control. The city's not in control. Landowners are not in control. God's in control. And God is sovereign. And God is, works through providence. And I've been reminded of that through this process of this building, and we're reminded of that in the book of Esther, that when we think that the deck may be stacked against us, God, in His grace, and His love, and His mercy, and His sovereignty, and His providence may actually be working behind the scenes, stacking the deck in our favor for His glory, and His honor, and His purposes, and our good. And our good. And you're definitely going to see that as this story plays out. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful reminder that kings and kingdoms have come and gone, but you are the great king, the king of all kings and lord of all lords, and you are sovereignly on your throne to this day, ruling and reigning over everything, and that we can trust you even when we cannot trace you. Thank you for that reminder today. So we just continue an attitude of prayer right now with heads bowed and eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and you, you feel like this, the deck has been stacked against you because of situations in your life. And I want to remind you that God is in control, that you can trust God even when you cannot trace God. But, and I would also like to pray for you. If you're here today and you say, man, I need to hear this message because I feel like at times the deck has been stacked against me. But I, I, need, I need to hear this. It gave me hope. It gave me faith. It gave me encouragement that God is still on the throne and God is still in control of the details of my life. And I'm going to trust him even when I cannot trace him. Can I pray for anyone like that? Would you slip up your hand all across this auditorium? I'm going through something right now. I don't really get, I don't fully understand, but I'm gonna trust God. God bless you, God bless you. Father, I just pray for all those right now that are going through trials and tribulations and difficulties that they would trust you even when they cannot trace you and that they would believe that you are sovereignly in control and providentially working behind the scenes of their life and that your fingerprints can be seen and they would wait on your timing for all things. Continue an attitude of prayer right now. Maybe you're here today and church is new to you. God may be new to you. The Bible may be new to you. First, I just want to tell you, we're thrilled that you're here. And I want, I want, to, I want some of you to hear this loud and clear. 2,000 years ago, the God of this universe looked down on every single one of us, on mankind. And he saw that the deck had been stacked against all of us because of our sin. The Bible says the payment of sin is death. But it doesn't end there. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when God saw that the deck was stacked against us, and if we die in our sins, we will be separated from Him for all eternity, God made a decision to stack the deck in our favor by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live a perfect sinless life, die on the cross, shed His blood to pay and cover for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day to conquer death, hell, and the grave, and to stack the deck in our favor for all eternity. And all we have to do is accept it in faith as a free gift and say yes to Jesus, the one who stacked the deck in our favor. And if you've never done that, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now at this time in this place by praying a simple prayer. Now, this isn't a magic prayer. These aren't magic words that you say, but a prayer is a way to express the faith that's in our heart. And if you'd say yes, I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. Would you pray this prayer with me as I pray it right now from your heart to God's and mean it and invite him into your life today? It goes like this. Jesus, I'm calling on you today. I'm saying yes to you today. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I accept 
the gift of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me and stacking the deck in my favor for all eternity. Thank you. Thank you. As we continue in attitude prayer right now with heads bowed and, and eyes glo- closed, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love the privilege and the opportunity to pray for you. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I'd love to pray for you that you just grow in your walk and relationship with Jesus from this day forward. So right now, if you prayed that prayer with me and you meant it, would you slip up your hand all across this auditorium? Yes, God bless you, young man, right here. God bless you, ma'am, here. God bless you, ma'am, there. God bless you, sir. I see your hand right there. God bless you up here. Amen. Several hands. I can't even get to all of them. Can we praise God for that? Amen. 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 Listen, as we just continue an attitude of prayer, I'm going to pray for those of you that just raised your hand. But as I'm praying for you, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Because you just made the most important decision of your life. And you may be like, what's next? I'm going to ask you to take out that connection card right there in your newsletter. Give me your name and mailing address. Check that box that says, I accepted Christ today. Drop in the offering bucket and we receive our gifts in just a moment. So we can continue to pray for you by name and send you a little book in the mail called Seven Steps to Joy. So would you be filling that out right now as I pray for you? Father, I just pray for all those who put their faith and trust in you today as Lord and Savior. We pray that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. We welcome them as our brothers and sisters in faith into the family of God today. And we thank you again, the great reminder that you are in control of all things. Thank you for working in people's lives today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Can we celebrate people making decisions for Christ today? Amen. Thank you, Pastor Doug. Church, the word of God is powerful. This series has been great. Thank you so much for being here with us today. In a moment, we're going to close in a song of worship, but there's just a couple of things I want to point out before we do that. If you raised your hand today and you said yes to Jesus for the first time, we want to know about that. The reason why is we want to be able to pray for you by name, and we also want to be able to send you a booklet in the mail that's going to help you in your newfound walk with Jesus. So on your connection card in your newsletter, there's a spot to check that says, I said yes to Jesus. And if you'll do that and fill out your your name and your mailing address, drop that in the offering bucket when it goes by here in a moment. Uh, We'll send that booklet in the mail to you and be able to pray for you by name. If you're new to Orchard Church, this is your first time. We hope you filled out that connection card as well with your name and your mailing address. We do have a free gift and a thank you card to send you as well. So if you'll drop that in the offering when it goes by, that would be great too. And if you're new to Orchard Church, Pastor Doug will be out by the blue tent here after service. He would love to meet you in person and shake your hand. So if you're new, please stop by there and say hello. So This week was great. Next week is going to be fun, too, because while God has set the stage and got all the players in place, we have one more character to introduce in this story. It's our villain, Haman, the Joker. We're going to have a lot of fun with that, so don't miss next week. So please stand with us as we close in a song of worship and worship through our giving of our tithes and our offerings, because we want to be a church that, uh, that acts our wage. We give first, we save second, and we live on the rest. Thank you, Orchard Church. We love you.